Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mason, joined as always by my co-host, the equine education coordinator of Keep, and he's my pleasure, and Grand Slam Socials, Caitlin Christopherson. Guys, welcome to episode 12. Hey, Joe. Hey, Caitlin. We're reunited after some time apart, although I was so thrilled to see both of you guys in Saratoga, even though we didn't get to get, get, we didn't get to get to Get, blah, blah, blah. get to get together. <laughs> yeah, right. Say that five times fast. We didn't get a chance to get together. I know we didn't get our group picture. No, it's great. It was great running into you and Nice. We had a great day. It was Whitney Day, so I mean, Nick's go had a heck of a performance. Some great racing that day. So, um, yeah, it was awesome. A great summer at Saratoga. Hard to believe it's already over in Belmont Parks, just uh, right around the corner, but. Uh, still a lot of great racing to be had and still a lot of great guests to be had on the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. Heck yeah, especially Absolutely. having a, a break after a you know a period of time. But we've been, we've been working on bringing this podcast to you guys. It took some planning and coordinating to get these two amazing guests on together at the same time. Both certainly have very busy schedules. Uh, fantastic. I'm so excited for this one. Cool. Well, Joe, do you want to kick us off with an introduction? Let's dive right in. Now happy to welcome in our guest for today's episode. The first, a three-time Olympian, a winner of every major American Grand Prix, a six-time equestrian national champion, and most recently, a Kentucky Derby and Belmont Stakes winning trainer, the second, a rising star in the world of show jumping, capturing both the Richard M. Feldman Grand Prix and the Great American Insurance Group Grand Prix in Lake Placid, the father and son duo of Michael and Alex Matz. Guys, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, Joe. Thank you. Doing well. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for being on with us today. This is Anise. And, you know, I think that a cool place to start, Michael, might be with with you know your transition between you know show jumping, your career in show jumping, and conditioning racehorses. So you know, how did you get involved in the show jumping world, and then where did that transition into training racehorses come into play? Well, the uh, the transition into the show jumping world was a little bit. Uh, an odd one because uh, I, I never ridden until I was uh, 16 other than saying maybe going to, to the pony rides at the fair. But uh, I had a job working for a man and there uh, was a friend of my father's uh, working on the weekends, cutting his grass. And uh, he ended up getting two horses and one for him and one for his wife. And uh, it sort of went from there that uh, he asked me to go on the rides with him and when his wife didn't ride and uh, he asked me if I knew how to ride, I said, Oh, sure. I know how to ride. And uh, <laughs> so it just uh, went from there and uh, I sort of saw the challenge in it and, uh, you know, did that for a couple of years and joined a local pony club. And uh, when I got out of high school, I got a job on a farm and uh, it just went from there. And actually I love, I love that kind of beginning because I think, you know, a lot of kids might look up to someone like you and think, well, 
you know, it seems so easy. Like he's had so much success. A lot of times people don't think back to, you know, when you start from basically level zero. And so actually talk about Pony Club and what the advantage is of having educational opportunities like that to help kids get started. Well, the the, the great thing about the Pony Club was that uh, I was obviously a little bit late when I started at 16, but uh, I would go, they'd have different rallies every week or every two weeks. And uh, I would go there with the, the horse that uh, I, from the man that was working where I was working at. And, uh, you know, I'm riding with uh, girls that are 12 and 13 years old on their little ponies. And here I'm driving to the rally. So <laughs> I, I started a little bit behind the eight ball, but it was quite interesting. And, uh, you know, it was very educational and, and I, I really enjoyed it. It was, a, you know, I met a lot of people and went along the way that, did the pony club valleys and the, you know, you go up from uh, unrated to the D to C to B to A. And uh, I never got to A, but uh, I got to B. So uh, it was very uh, educational along the way. And like I said, I met, met a lot of friends and, 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 and people along the way. Yeah, I've become a lot more, I didn't, I was actually in Pony Club for a very short time, but the closest Pony Club to me was a, a two and a half hour drive away, but um, I've become a lot more familiar with Pony Club in recent years and the opportunities that it gives kids to learn, and it just gives you such a good, you know, it solidifies foundational horsemanship, and then you build your way up from there. So what was the appeal to you know, get into show jumping. I know that, you know, Pony Club, they now have Western dressage and things like that, but it probably is more focused around um, the equestrian side of things. But yeah, where was that appeal? Well, uh, my my father was a, a, a plumber and I worked for him every summer. And then, uh, you know, on the weekends, I would go to, uh, to ride at this man's uh, farm. So the appeal started to be, uh, here, here we have a, a you know, a 1200 pound horse. And here you are 150 pounds trying to guide this horse and, and do what you wanted to do. Uh, I, I found it a real challenge and, and, and to do it right. Uh, I just, you know, was more interested in really the aspect of doing it right. And I would go to different horse shows and watch what everybody did and who won this week and I'd go back the next week home and I'd try that style. And I, you know, just tried a lot of different things. And, uh, I just thought it was real challenging to do it the right way. And the more shows I went to and and watched, you know, I felt I could really do this. The only problem is I, I needed to get a good horse. And sometimes you just have to, you know, keep on working at it. And then, all of a sudden the opportunity will arise and there you go. You have somebody to, you know, give you a good horse or a sponsor will see you working hard. And, uh, most of the times hard work pays off. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Michael. This is Caitlin down here in Texas, by the way. Um, I, I just wanted to ask if the pony club, so how, maybe if that was also generational, if that was something that Alex did. 
Um, I was actually in Lake Placid earlier this summer and saw you win a couple Sunday Grand Prix. Um, so that was really exciting. And is that something like, Alex, did you have, what was your experience like? Obviously, you probably got into horses a bit earlier as a child um, growing up around it. Yeah, my experience was a little bit different. Um, I'm fortunate that my parents are experts in the horse industry. So um, I was born and raised on a farm and uh, my pony club was just asking my parents what what should be done with the horses. Um, so I, I didn't get that specific experience, but uh, I've heard, you know, amazing things about pony club and uh, I think it's a great outlet for uh, anybody who, you know, like I said, not many people have the, the resources and, and the advice that my parents have given me. Um, but if you, if you don't have that, I think pony club is a great way to get involved and, um, and pursue your passion for riding. Yeah, definitely. So what was it like for you, Alex? I mean, was there always just the strong passion and drive to compete? Because I also wonder if sometimes people who kind of grow up in that environment might burn out a little quicker. Yeah, I, I think maybe um, my mom was a strong pro proponent of all of her children getting good education. So I went to boarding school. I went to um, a normal university and I had those experiences, which I think are invaluable. And, uh, you know, maybe that is partially why I didn't get burned out. I mean, I always had support um, from my parents to, to ride and I could always do it um, if I wanted to and if I, if I worked at it. Uh, but I definitely, I think I always wanted to go into this um, as a career and uh, it's, I wouldn't say that I felt any pressure to do it. Um, so I don't know, I, I thank my parents for guiding me, but not forcing me um, because I think it's just made me have a greater appreciation for everything. So. That's great. So growing up, watching your dad, obviously he was involved in both the horse racing world and the show jumping world. What was that like getting to experience both? Um, well, I don't really remember much of his days show jumping, unfortunately. I've seen a lot of videos, but, um, you know, I remember going to the Kentucky Derby and watching Barbaro and. Uh, all the other great horses that he's been been able to work with. Um, so it's been, it's been really fun and exciting. Um, you know, I, I would always go to the show and people would ask me where my dad was and sort of try to help me remember how, how great he and my mother were back in the day. So, you know, that's always exciting to hear somebody else compliment your parents like that yeah. um, but yeah, it was it was amazing um so I, I don't know how else to explain it it was 
it's exciting to be able to go to all those big events and um it just makes you want to do it and and be involved yourself in some way Mm -hmm. so what ultimately drew you to the jumping as opposed to maybe going the horse racing route um i think for me i like the fact that if i in show jumping you know i train a horse for an extended period of time and then i'm the one that has most of the control in the ring um with the horse racing as a trainer you work day in and day out and then uh, the day the competition arrives and you hand the reins over to somebody else so uh, it can be very annoying um <laughs> I, yes, I've well, always, I'm not annoying frustrating yeah no i've wondered that myself as a rider but also seeing the meticulousness that most thoroughbred trainers put into the horses, you know, seven days a week, um, like, like everybody. And then kind of what that feeling must be like to basically hand like, you know, your prized Ferrari over and say, here you go, like do the best you can with it. Yeah. Michael, what was your first uh, experience with horse racing and how did you decide to get into training racehorses? Well, uh, when I was showing, I've, I, I always liked, uh, uh, liked the racehorses and we followed it quite a lot. We've had some very good friends. Uh, Dee Dee's family is very involved in horse racing and uh, we have a very good friend, Del Hancock and uh you know, we got to know some of the people that were really involved with the racing. And I just got a little bit to the point with, uh, I was a little bit disappointed in some of the management's situations with the horse shows. And uh, I was cutting down a little bit and uh, and I was getting older and, and uh, these young kids are coming up, they're stronger, faster. And, you know, I guess I got tired of getting beat. And uh, I just thought uh, I ended up winning the Gold Cup that year in uh, at Devon, and that was a hometown event. And I said, you know what, this is probably uh, probably the time to do it. So uh, that's when I I retired from uh, competition, and I, I tried to find something with the racehorses where I could something different, a new challenge. And I knew I was going from, you know, maybe the top percentage of my group to the bottom percentage uh, when I went to train. But I I thought it was a good challenge. And I think it's, uh, I've always said, uh, you know, good horses make good riders and good horses make good trainers. And uh, again, whether it's show jumping or racehorses, you've got to find those good horses. And now Alex is in that position where, you know, we're looking for good horses and, uh, he got a very good opportunity uh, uh, last fall. Some people uh, from our area named the McNeils wanted him, them to ride for him. And it was uh, one of their horses. He, he won the Grand Prix at Lake Placid. And then a young, uh, an, an inexperienced horse, uh, he won uh, the second Grand Prix up at Saint, uh, Southampton this week. So it's a great opportunity. They want to buy some horses and, and 
you know, continue with this. So, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for him, for horses to come his way. And prior to that transition, Michael, um, you were a three-time Olympian representing the U.S. in show jumping and your first coming in 1976 in Montreal. And, uh, in Atlanta, you even carried the American flag in the closing ceremonies of the Olympics. Uh, what was that like to represent your country at such a prestigious event? Well, it was a great opportunity, that's for sure. And uh, there was just so many stories that that came about the, the time going to Atlanta that, uh, you know, just made it a special event for us. Uh, we weren't supposed to, we weren't one of the favorites at the Atlanta games and we, we ended up getting the silver medal and, uh, the, uh, how they do the pick the people that carry the flag is they have a, a, a team, uh, captain who goes to the meeting and they, uh, picked me as the representative for the equestrian. So, uh, track and field gymnastics, they all go to a special meeting with the team captains and they, uh, tell how they want to, um, you know, why their representative should carry the flag. Uh, so uh, Robert Dover was our team captain and he rode dressage. So he went and, and it ended up, uh, I thought I was for opening ceremonies. Uh, Bruce Baumgartner carried the flag in opening ceremonies and I was going to take the oath, except they didn't want a white, two white males to be there, so they picked a black female and Teresa Edwards, the basketball player. So it was way it worked. But Robert said, "Don't worry, I'm gonna. You're gonna carry the flag in closing ceremony." So I didn't think much of it. We won a silver medal, and the gymnastic people did so well. Michael Johnson did so well in the track and field, and they went to go go vote and. Uh, the last person got up and said, uh, my God, this guy's been doing it for 20 years. His last Olympics was in 1976, and this is 1996. He says, he's not going to be around much longer. We better get him to go to the games. <laughs> so they didn't even, they voted right there, and uh, that's how I got to carry the flag. Wow. He never wow. even he never even nominated anybody for the, for the track and field. So it was just... He said they just voted and that was it. So it was kind of a lot of lot of nice experiences. Uh, and the same thing when you when you go to the Olympic Games, you get two tickets for the beginning, opening ceremonies, and you just get you don't get any for closing. If you get them for closing, you don't get them for opening. You, just for yourself, you get two extra tickets. So I didn't have anybody there at opening ceremonies, and uh, I had. I gave my tickets to a dressage rider, had some extra people coming right there. So uh, I needed, I didn't have any for clothing ceremonies. And uh, I had 14 people there and they were $660 a piece of ticket. Oh no. <laughs> so I, uh, uh, I said, well, how many times do you do this? So I gave my wife a check and uh, she went to go pick it up. And they said the exactly the same thing. The guy looked at her and looked at nobody was looking, gave her all the tickets and said, we didn't think he'd be here for that long. So take the tickets <laughs> and enjoy it. So, a lot of nice things that happened. 
Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of amazing people out there. But gosh, for an opportunity like that, you know, you want to be able to have all your supporters and friends and family there to share that kind of moment with you. And, you know, I have to ask what you've had so many amazing moments, both in, in show jumping and in racing. Is there a moment that tops all? Well, I know that's a really hard question because it's like every, you know, experience and memory, it's like comparing apples to oranges. But, you know, is there something that kind of rises above? They were all pretty special. Uh, It was nice to see Alex win his first Grand Prix, too. So I've I've had a lot of, you know, good experiences. So that that. You know, the Derby was great. Uh, the Olympics, uh, the Pan American Games are real good. So uh, I hope we can have some more of them with Alex. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure to be able to see that now, to see your son coming up in the fashion kind of that you did and being able to share those experiences with him is something that's just truly amazing. No, it, it's a lot of fun. So I have to ask, because I am interested not to get too much into the um, technicalities or, you know, the functionality of the different horses, but you mentioned earlier finding great horses, whether it be in horse racing or for show jumping. And I'm just, I'm curious, what are, how do the mechanics, um, how are they different from like a great racehorse to a great show jumper. And, and why is that? That's just something personally that I've always kind of been fascinated by because obviously they're both incredible athletes in their own right, but for very different reasons. Well, I think one of the big uh, situations is the, uh, the, the, both the balance of everything, uh, the balance of the racehorse, the, the balance of the, the show horse. Uh, and I think that, for me, that's the biggest uh, contributor for both of them. Obviously, they must have a good head uh, to, to cope with all of it. But I would say that the balance is, is one of the most important things. And I think that, you know, whether it's a, a human athlete, a horse athlete, uh, or, or any kind of even a dog or, or anything like that, uh, you know, the balance is probably one of the most important situations that, that we have in, in, in athletics. And kind of stemming from that, what are some of the major differences between conditioning a racehorse and conditioning, you know, a Grand Prix level show jumper? Well, I, I, I try to make it as simple as possible. I, 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 you know, I, and I tell the kids when we're riding that, you know, three things that uh, I always think about when I'm riding and, and that comes to play even with uh, the thoroughbreds is that you want to make them forward, straight and imbalanced. And if you come, a, come to think about that, that, that'll apply to a lot of different things. And, uh, but if you have all those three things, uh, even in a racehorse, uh, you know, you won't go too far wrong. And, and that's a sort of a basic foundation that I, uh, you know, obviously the, the racehorses are fitter and there's little different things that you do with the racehorses than you do with the jumpers. But 
we also try to have our jumpers as fit as possible that we can. Uh, so less injuries, uh, have them conditioned to the point where, you know, they're using everything, their back, their everything. And uh, I think those three basic uh, uh, forward, straight, and balance uh, keeps them in, in a good frame and uh, you won't go too far wrong. And Michael, you're based at a Fair Hill Training Center. And for those who don't know Fair Hill, it's in Maryland. And it's just this beautiful facility with, you know, rolling hills. There's, you know, grass gallops. There's a, you know, a rehab and therapy center there on site. Is it, there's, is there a dirt track and a synthetic track there, Michael? Yeah, we have a dirt track and a synthetic track. And uh, across the street, they just put a new turf course in there. Uh, the state uh, built this facility uh, for the big three-day event that's going to be there in October, the five-star event. Uh, they put three new show jumping rings in the center of it. Uh, it was quite a big project. Uh, in fact, uh, they've only had a couple horses on the turf course, and it looks beautiful over there. Everybody's dying to get on it. But uh, the state of Maryland really made a nice project over there to uh, for this facility, and uh, their 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 big uh, three day event is going to be there in October. It's just such a cool and unique facility that stands out in in the thoroughbred industry, and it's you know so many trainers have their strings of horses or their stables or their base, I should say, set up at a racetrack of the backstretch of a racetrack. So what factored into your decision to want to set up at a place like Fair Hill versus being based at an actual track? Well, the, the big thing at Fair Hill is uh, it's on, I, I don't know, a couple thousand acres and you can ride the horses out back. There's rolling hills. You can gallop them out the back there. Uh, there's plenty of turnouts so the horses can get turned out. Uh, our racehorses usually get try to get turned out every day if it's possible. And uh, I think it makes for the longevity of the horse uh, than being at the racetrack. Uh, the fact that the air is fresher, they can go out and get green grass. I, I just think it's a better opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's about, we're about 35 minutes from there and uh, where our farm is. And, uh, you know, it's just a nice opportunity to go there, come back, watch the kids ride. My wife does a lot of the stuff with them at the shows when I can't go. So uh, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. And for both of you and Alex, starting with you, I'd love to have you each describe what a day is like in your life. You know, Alex, from I know that you probably ride a ton of horses every day. And, you know, Michael, I'm sure your days look a lot different from what they used to when you were you know, actively riding as a show jumper. So, Alex, just describe that to us, what a typical day is like for you. Um, well, at the moment, I have horses at two different farms. And um, so I'll get up and uh, I live at my parents' farm currently. And so I'll get up and ride a couple horses here. And then um, I will grab a coffee and get in the car and head over to the McNeil's farm uh, where I'll ride, you know, between five to seven horses there. And depending on 
if either Mrs. McNeil or her daughter um, want lessons, I'll I'll teach some lessons. Um, but normally I've finished, you know, there around three thirty four, uh, and then drive home. So my day is normally like seven thirty to to four, I would say. Um, and then you have to sprinkle in, you know, having the vet. Um, I have another horse right now in New Jersey. Sometimes I have to drive down there to ride that horse. But uh, it's a lot of just, you know, regular flat work with all the horses. And then um, about once a week, I'll normally school some of the horses. And so then I'll coordinate with my mom or dad and uh, we'll work something out in the afternoon to either school at the McNeil Farmer here. And Michael, what are your days like, day, you know, on a daily basis? Uh, mine starts a little bit earlier. Uh, I usually get up around 4 and then leave the house around 4.30 and go to Fair Hill. And uh, we have about 35 horses right now. And uh, I, I'm gonna, I tried to cut down a little bit from uh, the year before, a couple of years ago. And uh, then we'll take care of those if we have something to run. Usually my assistant takes it to the racetrack and I usually come back at a house here and uh, either if there's something to do with uh, Lucy, Alex or Robert to ride, I'll either help them a little bit or watch them ride or if we have to school or something, have a little gymnastic, we'll do that. Sometimes it's I'll run over to to see Alex at the McNeil's if we want to put a little gymnastic up or something like that. Uh, other than that, uh, usually my wife does all the work at the, the show and usually I try to come up when I can, like on a weekend or something like that. So uh, this week was, uh, we were in Southampton and uh, they started up there they left on monday and i was able to come up on friday for the qualifying class and then stay till sunday so uh it works out that i get to watch uh you know and nowadays with all these live streams and stuff like that you can see a lot of the classes uh all the time when they go so they just let me know when they're going and uh, i can usually get it on the ipad and watch them go Caitlin, you mentioned before you had a really interesting shoeing question that I'm curious to hear the answer to. Oh, yeah, kind of going back to the uh, the form and functionality of the different disciplines. I was curious um, how, like, again, they're, you know, the foundationally speaking, you want, as you said, the balance and a good head. Um, but there are some things that just seem to be very particular to maybe the thoroughbred side of things. And it's just how things have been done for over 100 years. Um, what is the the anatomy of um, like a racehorse's foot? It's obviously very different from a warm blood. Um, not so much the anatomy, but of course, the um, I guess the shoeing in the mechanics, uh, in how, um, it's shaped. Why is that? Well, I, I don't think there's much difference. Uh, you know, they're all the same, the anatomy and the same, they have the same structure, the same bone. Uh, a lot of times the thoroughbred probably is a little bit lighter bone than the, uh, than the warm blood. Uh, 
and you do see like sort of a bigger foot and maybe a little bit more of a clubby foot. But, you know, I, I think basically the same, you, you want to make sure the shoe is fit as full as possible and that the shoe is very well balanced on the, on the foot. So there's a lot of, uh, I do see a lot of things, different shoeing on some of these warm bloods that I just really don't know how that it, it, it works well. But, uh, you know, if you get a good blacksmith, in fact, uh, the blacksmith we have right now, he does our race horses and our show, uh, show horses. So it's, oh, wow. uh, okay. yeah. And, and he, he's very good about fitting the, the shoe as full as possible. One of the things with the race horse, uh, sometimes the blacksmith won't fit the, the shoe as full as possible. That means try to cover as much space as the horse's foot as possible. So it, it, it covers everything and try to give the horse more support. And you'll find with the race horses, they'll usually sometimes on younger horses, they'll try to fit them a little bit smaller so that in case they overreach when they're galloping or trotting fast, they don't want them to pull it. So uh, it's, it's too bad, but that's happened sometimes. So we're lucky right now. We have a very good blacksmith that uh, is, you know, is very conscious of that. Yeah. That's fascinating that he is, he does uh, both at such high levels, um, obviously like the top levels of each sport. So just as we are, are kind of like wrapping up here, I guess with an eye on the future, um, who are the up and coming horses for you all on, on both sides in the, um, on the track and, in the jumping arena well uh on the track right now i'm uh i have a couple two-year-olds that i'm uh hoping for that are going to be good horses but <laughs> i don't see anyone that i'm making reservations right now in the first week in uh, may in kentucky but anyway that's uh, the sales are coming up in september the yearling sales and uh there'll be you know three thousand horses in the sale 4,000 horses down there in Kentucky in September. So uh, you hope you get one of those that you'll make a reservation in uh, the first week in May in Kentucky. So uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of hope. And, uh, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit uh, cutting back a little bit that I'm not taking as many horses. So, and it's a numbers game with the race horses. You need a lot of, you need to go through a lot of horses and, uh, you know, you'll, I have some good ones. I just don't know how, how good they are yet. Some of the two-year-olds we have some hopes for, but they're still, uh, you know, they've just had one or two races. And Alex, how about for you? Anything young, up and coming and exciting that, that you're pumped to be riding? Yeah, I, I have quite a few nice horses at the moment. Um, the horse that just won in Southampton, he's not young, but he's inexperienced at that level. His name is Ardento. And then um, I've got a good older horse uh, that my mother owns named Cashew and uh, a few other nice ones. And then we just, the Mc, McNeil's just bought a young eight-year-old that looks pretty special. So we'll see what he's made of in, in the next year. That's great. And... And guys, before we let you go, um, 
what advice would you guys give to a young person trying to get involved in either show jumping or the thoroughbred racing industry? What sort of advice would you give um, a young person like that? Um, well, I don't have a ton of experience in the industry yet, but for my short time, I would say that you just have to try to surround yourself with good people and then don't give up. Um, it's not the easiest business. It's definitely hard work and long hours. And, uh, but I think that if you just keep going and, and never lose, you know, you know, keep persevering, um, keep believing that you will get an opportunity, um, that it will happen. And uh, Michael, what would your advice be to somebody getting involved in either show jumping? I, or I would say uh, I, I couldn't agree more with my son. The biggest thing I think in this business, uh, there's nothing new about it. You want to make sure you surround yourself with good people. Uh, get yourself uh, hooked up with a person that is honest teaching you to do things the right way. And uh, like I said, you, it's, it's hard work. It's very gratifying when it goes good. More often it's disappointing, but uh, like I said, it's, it's something that you've got to, you know, keep after. Uh, like I say, when things go well, it, it's so gratifying and uh, that you you've done well and, uh, it's 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 a, the greatest feeling in the world and there's going to be a lot of times when you're down in the dumps and don't figure how you're going to get yourself out of it but uh you you just have to persevere and and keep going and uh you work hard enough you'll you'll find a way and that's certainly valuable advice for any discipline any riding discipline that you're involved in and I, you know, I actually have one last question, you know, a big piece of what, what we are hoping to do is to, you know, find commonalities between different riding disciplines and, you know, to educate people about racing and, you know, even open our eyes to other disciplines. And I was mentioning to my co-hosts as we were preparing for this show that, Michael, I've you know, known so much about you and your success as a racehorse trainer, but I knew so little about you know, your show jumping career. And I think that a lot of times when you're involved in a certain riding discipline, it's easy to kind of have your blinkers on, so to speak, and not have your eyes open to the wider, you know, equine world. And, you know, some of the all the commonalities that we share. So I'm curious for both of you to share before we go, you know, Alex, what, and I guess both of you can answer this, what do you wish that you know, people who are involved in the racing world, so to speak, would understand about the equestrian or show jumping world. And then what do you wish that the equestrian world would understand more about racing? Um, well, I think there's a lot to be learned from both disciplines. And I think there isn't something necessarily that I wish the racehorse community um, could learn from show jumpers. But I think that you know, riders are, and anybody involved um, in the equestrian community should have an appreciation for other disciplines. 
that I think is the most important thing because if you have an appreciation and uh, even if you, you don't have an interest, but you can at least uh, maybe learn something about the horsemanship or the management uh, that you might apply to your own discipline and, and might better your horse, which is why we all do it to begin with. So I think just being, you know, open to, to learning from different disciplines is the most important part there. Yeah, amen to that. And you touched on, you know, a great point there that at the center of all of this, regardless of your discipline, is the horse. And that's what we're all here for. Michael, how about you? Well, uh, like I say, in both disciplines, things are done a little bit differently. Uh, there are so many things I took from uh, from my showing career days to the racehorses and uh, just added a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, there were different things in the racehorse uh, industry that I learned that can be helpful in, in the show horses also. So I agree with Alex that, the you know, once you think you know it all, you don't know anything. And uh, you, you can you can learn something from anybody, even if it's the the hot walker that's walking your horse or to the, uh, you know, the guy selling uh, tack to, to whatever. And, and you just have to keep your eyes and ears open, take the good things in. If it's something that can help you, keep it in the back of your mind. If it's something that, uh, you know, and there's a lot of uh, hogwash in this business that, uh, you know, goes around. But, you know, that stuff, you got to let it go in one ear and out the other. In the show horses and the race horses. So, as I said earlier, I try to make it as simple as possible with the race horses and with the show horses. One of the biggest things that I saw right now in the show horses that uh, everybody is, uh, and I don't know why, when I was competing there was not near the strong bits that there are on horses as today. And uh, I don't know why that is, but uh, like I said, that's just a, a different thing for me. And uh, I'm not criticizing it, but, you know, I have to learn why that is. <laughs> so, like I said, it, it's, uh, it's just a different, you know, it's a long time since I was uh, show jumping until now, but... Uh, uh, I'll pick it up again. Don't worry. Definitely. Well, I just, I love that you said, you know, whether it's the hall walker or the vet or the farrier, just always, um, something that you can learn. I definitely believe that. And this has been so incredible getting to learn from, um, a, an absolute legend and, um, up and coming legend, it seems like. So thank you guys so much. Yes, thank you both for your time. You. And uh, Alex, best of luck. And uh, yeah, well, yeah, Michael, Michael, you too. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll be interviewing you next uh, next spring before Derby. Yeah, well, we hope so. But uh, I think Alex has a better chance than I do. So I'll, I'll just follow along in the footsteps. <laughs> Well, certainly some awesome information, some great stories shared with us by Alex and Michael Matz, father-son duo on today's episode of the podcast. I was There's so much I didn't know, guys, about Michael from his history in show jumping 
to, you know, even the fact that he didn't grow up in the industry. I didn't realize that he'd had such simple beginnings and just such a chance introduction with horses as he did. And to grow to that level of prominence in not one, but two different equine disciplines is amazing. Yeah, he said he didn't start riding until he was around 16. I mean, that's um, that's unheard of these days. I know. And it's crazy because when you think of Michael Match, you think of horses like Barbaro and Union Rags of yesteryear. But when you dig deeper and you do some research and you watch some YouTube videos, you find out that there's more to the man than just that. There's uh, three Olympic games he competed in and a bunch of a bunch of accomplishments in show jumping. The guy is uh, a master of uh, equine training of all sorts, apparently. <laughs> and I think one of the things that we failed to mention a bit is that his, his wife and Alex's mother, Dee Dee Matz, is also a highly acclaimed show jumper. And Michael did mention her a couple times that, you know, she's very involved with going to the shows and everything. But, you know, I'm very impressed with Alex that when you grow up with two parents that are as well known and such amazingly talented riders as Michael and Didi, you know, you really hope that you can follow in their shoes and that those genetics got passed on. (laughs) And clearly they did. He's such a talented rider to be performing at this level and at the age of what 24 yes while also attending um as he talked about you know he was in school full-time and he he went to he had the four-year college experience so absolutely a lot going on for that young man it was really cool to get to talk to him after after seeing him ride this summer i think the grand prix that i watched him in he had three or four mounts um and ended up in the top 10 with several of them and including um a win so that's just awesome to see the enthusiasm and the dedication that is still being cultivated and and that exists um, in younger people in, in both sports, in, um, in riding and in racing. Yeah, it certainly takes a lot of meticulous planning, training, you know, scheduling your day, especially when you are a student and you are competing or involved in horses in any way, you know, it takes a lot of responsibility And you certainly have to love it, regardless of what discipline you're in. We've talked many times before about the hours that it takes uh, to be, you know, working in a sport like thoroughbred racing. But I think today really went to show that that's across all disciplines. If you want to be with horses, you better uh, you better have a passion before you sign yourself up. Yep. And what Michael said about you know, the, the highs and the lows. It's, it's so true. I mean, now owning my own horse once again, I remember, I mean, I, I can't imagine having a barn of 35 horses <laughs> when dealing with just one. I mean, you just, there's, it. sometimes it can feel like the odds are never, um, you know, in your favor and that it's just one thing after another. So it really definitely has to be 
um, an overall respect and love for the animal that kind of keeps you coming back and, and doing it for so long because it's definitely one of those things where it can feel like there are more um, more obstacles and tribulations than than moments spent in the winter circle. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Well, guys, this is great. Thanks for another amazing episode. And I look forward to chatting again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for everybody who is going to tune into this episode. And um, so grateful for, oh, we should mention, we would be um, remiss, I think, not to mention our recent nomination to the America's Best Racing Fan Choice Awards. Oh, yeah, for a favorite podcast or radio recording. That was so cool. That was a big surprise. And I think, you guys, that we did make the the list for semifinalists, um, which should be out in a couple of months. So, yeah, thank you to all of our listeners. We got fans. We have fans. It's we amazing. Do. It's remarkable. For Caitlin Christofferson and it's my pleasure, I'm Joe Mason saying thank you for listening to the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast.